0: Letter 108 of Moral Letters to Lucilius by Lucius Aeneas Seneca, translated by Richard M. Gummier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Approaches to Philosophy. The topic about which you ask me is one of those where our only concern with knowledge is to have the knowledge. Nevertheless, because it does so far concern us, you are in a hurry. You are not willing to wait for the books which I am at this moment arranging for you, and which embrace the whole department of moral philosophy. I shall send you the books at once, but I shall, before doing that, write and tell you how this eagerness to learn, with which I see you are aflame, should be regulated, so that it may not get in its own way. Things are not to be gathered at random, nor should they be greedily attacked in the mass, one will arrive at a knowledge of the whole by studying the parts. The burden should be suited to your strength, nor should you tackle more than you can adequately handle. Absorb not all that you wish, but all that you can hold. Only be of a sound mind, and then you will be able to hold all that you wish. For the more the mind receives, the more does it expand.' This was the advice, I remember, which Attalus gave me in the days when I practically laid siege to his classroom, the first to arrive and the last to leave. Even as he paced up and down, I would challenge him to various discussions, for he not only kept himself accessible to his pupils, but met them halfway. His words were, The same purpose should possess both master and scholar. An ambition in the one case is to promote, and in the other to progress he who studies with a philosopher should take away with him some one good thing every day he should daily return home a sounder man or in the way to become sounder and he will thus return for it is one of the functions of philosophy to help not only those who study her but those also who associate with her he that walks in the sun though he walk not for that purpose, must needs become sunburned. He who frequents the perfumer's shop and lingers even for a short time will carry with him the scent of the place. And he who follows a philosopher is bound to derive some benefit therefrom which will help him, even though he be remiss. Mark what I say. Remiss, not recalcitrant. What, then, you say. Do we not know certain men who have sat for many years at the feet of a philosopher, and yet have not acquired the slightest tinge of wisdom? Of course I know such men. There are indeed persevering gentlemen who stick at it. I do not call them pupils of the wise, but merely squatters. Certain of them come to hear and not to learn, just as we are attracted to the theatre to satisfy the pleasures of the ear, whether by a speech, or by a song, or by a play. This class, as you will see, constitutes a large part of the listeners, who regard the philosopher's lecture-room merely as a sort of lounging place for their leisure. They do not set about to lay aside any faults there, or to receive a rule of life by which they may test their characters. They merely wish to enjoy to the full the delights of the ear, and yet some arrive even with note-books, not to take down the matter, but only the words, that they may presently repeat them to others with as little profit to these as they themselves received when they heard them. A certain number are stirred by high-sounding phrases, and adapt themselves to the emotions of the speaker with lively change of face and mind, just like the emasculated Phrygian priests— "'who are wont to be roused by the sound of the flute "'and go mad to order. "'But the true hearer is ravished "'and stirred by the beauty of the subject-matter, "'not by the jingle of empty words. "'When a bold word has been uttered in defiance of death, "'or a saucy fling in defiance of fortune, "'we take delight in acting straightway "'upon that which we have heard. "'Men are impressed by such words "'and become what they are bidden to be.' should but the impression abide in the mind, and should the populace who discourage honourable things not immediately lie in wait to rob them of this noble impulse. Only a few can carry home the mental attitude with which they were inspired. It is easy to rouse a listener so that he will crave righteousness, for nature has laid the foundations and planted the seeds of virtue in us all. And we are all born to these general privileges, hence when the stimulus is added the good spirit is stirred as if it were freed from bonds have you not noticed how the theatre re-echoes whenever any words are spoken whose truth we appreciate generally and confirm unanimously the poor lack much the greedy man lacks all a greedy man does good to none he does most evil to himself At such verses as these your meanest miser claps applause and rejoices to hear his own sins reviled how much more do you think this holds true when such things are uttered by a philosopher when he introduces verses among his wholesome precepts that he may thus make those verses sink more effectively into the mind of the neophyte Cleanthes used to say as our breath produces a louder sound when it passes through the long and narrow opening of the trumpet and escapes by a hole which widens at the end even so the fettering rules of poetry clarify our meaning the very same words are more carelessly received and make less impression upon us when they are spoken in prose but when metre is added and when regular prosody has compressed a noble idea then the self-same thought comes as it were hurtling with a fuller fling. We talk much about despising money, and we give advice on this subject in the lengthiest of speeches, that mankind may believe true riches to exist in the mind, and not in one's bank account, and that the man who adapts himself to his slender means, and makes himself wealthy on a little sum, is the truly rich man. But our minds are struck more effectively when a verse like this is repeated he needs but little who desires but little or he hath his wish whose wish includeth naught save that which is enough when we hear such words as these we are led toward a confession of the truth even men in whose opinion nothing is enough wonder and applaud when they hear such words and swear eternal hatred against money when you see them thus disposed strike home keep at them and charge them with this duty dropping all double meanings syllogisms hair-splitting and the other side-shows of ineffective smartness preach against greed preach against high living and when you notice that you have made progress and impress the minds of your hearers lay on still harder you cannot imagine how much progress can be brought about by an address of that nature when you are bent on curing your hearers and are absolutely devoted to their best interests. For when the mind is young, it may most easily be won over to desire what is honorable and upright. Truth, if she can obtain a suitable pleader, will lay strong hands upon those who can still be taught, those who have been but superficially spoiled. At any rate, when I used to hear Attalus denouncing sin, error, and the evils of life. I often felt sorry for mankind, and regarded Attalus as a noble and majestic being, above our mortal heights. He called himself a king, but I thought him more than a king, because he was entitled to pass judgment on kings. And in truth, when he began to uphold poverty— and to show what a useless and dangerous burden was everything that passed the measure of our need, I often desired to leave his lecture-room a poor man. Whenever he castigated our pleasure-seeking lives, and extolled personal purity, moderation and diet, and a mind free from unnecessary, not to speak of unlawful, pleasures, the desire came upon me to limit my food and drink, And that is why some of these habits have stayed with me lucilius for i had planned my whole life with great resolves and later when i returned to the duties of a citizen i did indeed keep a few of these good resolutions that is why i have forsaken oysters and mushrooms forever since they are not really food but are relishes to bully the sated stomach into further eating as is the fancy of gourmands and those who stuff themselves beyond their powers of digestion. Down with it quickly, and up with it quickly. That is why I have also throughout my life avoided perfumes. Because the best scent for the person is no scent at all. That is why my stomach is unacquainted with wine. That is why throughout my life I have shunned the bath and have believed that to emaciate the body and sweat it into thinness is at once unprofitable and effeminate. Other resolutions have been broken, but after all in such a way that, in cases where I cease to practice abstinence, I have observed a limit, which is indeed next door to abstinence. Perhaps it is even a little more difficult, because it is easier for the will to cut off certain things utterly than to use them with restraint. Inasmuch as I have begun to explain to you how much greater was my impulse to approach philosophy in my youth than to continue it in my old age, I shall not be ashamed to tell you what ardent zeal Pythagoras inspired in me. Sotion used to tell me why Pythagoras abstained from animal food, and why in later times Sextius did also. In each case the reason was different, but it was in each case a noble reason. Sextius believed that man had enough sustenance without resorting to blood, and that a habit of cruelty is formed whenever butchery is practised for pleasure. Moreover, he thought that we should curtail the sources of our luxury. He argued that a varied diet was contrary to the laws of health and was unsuited to our constitutions. Pythagoras, on the other hand, held that all beings were interrelated, and that there was a system of exchange between souls which transmigrated from one bodily shape into another. If one may believe him, no soul perishes or ceases from its functions at all, except, for a tiny interval, when it is being poured from one body into another. We may question at what time, and after what seasons of change, the soul returns to man, when it has wandered through many a dwelling-place. But meantime, he made men fearful of guilt and parricide, since they might be, without knowing it, attacking the soul of a parent and injuring it with knife or with teeth. If, as is possible, the related spirit be dwelling temporarily in this bit of flesh. When Sotian had set forth this doctrine, supplementing it with his own proofs, he would say, You do not believe that souls are assigned first to one body and then to another, and that our so-called death is merely a change of abode? You do not believe that in cattle, or in wild beasts, or in creatures of the deep, the soul of him who was once a man may linger? You do not believe that nothing on this earth is annihilated, but only changes its haunts, and that animals also have cycles of progress and, so to speak, in orbit for their souls no less than the heavenly bodies which revolve in fixed circuits great men have put faith in this idea therefore while holding to your own view keep the whole question in abeyance in your mind if the theory is true it is a mark of purity to refrain from eating flesh if it be false it is economy and what harm does it do to you to give such credence I am merely depriving you of food which sustains lions and vultures. I was imbued with this teaching, and began to abstain from animal food. At the end of a year the habit was as pleasant as it was easy. I was beginning to feel that my mind was more active, though I would not today positively state whether it really was or not. Do you ask how I came to abandon the practice?' it was this way the days of my youth coincided with the early part of the reign of tiberius caesar some foreign rites were at that time being inaugurated an abstinence from certain kinds of animal food was set down as a proof of interest in the strange cult so at the request of my father who did not fear prosecution but who detested philosophy i returned to my previous habits and it was no very hard matter to induce me to dine more comfortably. Attalus used to recommend a pillow which did not give in to the body, and now, old as I am, I use one so hard that it leaves no trace after pressure. I have mentioned all this in order to show you how zealous neophytes are with regard to their first impulses toward the highest ideals. Provided that someone does his part in exhorting them and in kindling their ardor, there are indeed mistakes made, through the fault of our advisers who teach us how to debate and not how to live. There are also mistakes made by the pupils who come to their teachers to develop not their souls, but their wits. Thus the study of wisdom has become the study of words. Now it makes a great deal of difference what you have in mind when you approach a given subject. If a man is to be a scholar and is examining the works of Virgil. He does not interpret the noble passage. Time flies away and cannot be restored, in the following sense. We must wake up. Unless we hasten, we shall be left behind. Time rolls swiftly ahead and rolls us with it. We are hurried along, ignorant of our destiny. We arrange all our plans for the future, and on the edge of a precipice are at our ease. Instead of this, he brings to our attention how often Virgil, in speaking of the rapidity of time, uses the word flies, FUGIT, the choicest days of hapless human life FLY first, disease and bitter eld succeed, and toil till harsh death rudely snatches all. He who considers these lines in the spirit of a philosopher, comments on the words in their proper sense. Virgil never says, Time goes; but time flies, because the latter is the quickest kind of movement, and in every case our best days are the first to be snatched away. Why, then, do we hesitate to bestir ourselves so that we may be able to keep pace with the swiftest of all swift things? The good flies past, and the bad takes its place. Just as the purest wine flows from the top of the jar, and the thickest dregs settle at the bottom, so in our human life, that which is best comes first shall we allow other men to quaff the best and keep the dregs for ourselves let this phrase cleave to your soul you should be satisfied thereby as if it were uttered by an oracle each choicest day of hapless human life flies first why choicest day because what's to come is unsure. Why? Choicest day. Because in our youth we are able to learn. We can bend to nobler purposes minds that are ready and still pliable. Because this is the time for work, the time for keeping our minds busied in study and in exercising our bodies with useful effort. For that which remains is more sluggish and lacking in spirit, nearer the end. Let us, therefore, strive with all courage. Omitting attractions by the way, let us struggle with a single purpose, lest, when we are left behind, we comprehend too late the speed of quick-flying time, whose course we cannot stay. Let every day, as soon as it comes, be welcome as being the choicest, and let it be made our own possession. We must catch that which flees. Now, he who scans with a scholar's eye the lines I have just quoted, does not reflect that our first days are the best because disease is approaching, and old age weighs upon us and hangs over our heads while we are still thinking about our youth, he thinks rather of Virgil's usual collocation of disease and eld and indeed, rightly. For old age is a disease which we cannot cure. Besides, he says to himself, think of the epithet that accompanies eld. Virgil calls it bitter. Disease and bitter eld succeed. And elsewhere, Virgil says, there dwelleth pale disease and bitter eld there is no reason why you should marvel that each man can collect from the same source suitable matter for his own studies for in the same meadow the cow grazes the dog hunts the hare and the stork the lizard when cicero's book on the state is opened by a philologist a scholar or a follower of philosophy each man pursues his investigation in his own way The philosopher wonders that so much could have been said therein against justice the philologist takes up the same book and comments on the text as follows there were two roman kings one without a father and one without a mother for we cannot settle who was servius's mother and ancus the grandson of numa has no father on record the philologist also notes that the officer whom we call dictator and about whom, we read in our histories under that title, was named in old times the Magister Populi, such is the name existing today in the augural records, proved by the fact that he whom the dictator chose as second in command was called Magister Equitum. He will remark, too, that Romulus met his end during an eclipse, that there was an appeal to the people even from the kings, this is so stated in the pontiff's register and is the opinion of others including fenestella when the scholar unrolls this same volume he puts down in his notebook the forms of words noting that reapsi equivalent to reipsa is used by cicero and sepse just as frequently which means ipse, then he turns his attention to changes in current usage cicero for example says inasmuch as we are summoned back from the very calx by his interruption. Now the line in the circus, which we call the Creta, was called the calx by men of old time. Again he puts together some verses by Aeneas, especially those which referred to Africanus, a man to whom nor friend nor foe could give, due meed for all his efforts and his deed.' from this passage the scholar declares that he infers the word opem to have meant formerly not merely assistance but efforts for aeneas must mean that neither friend nor foe could pay scipio a reward worthy of his efforts next he congratulates himself on finding the source of virgil's words over whose head the mighty gate of heaven thunders remarking that aeneas stole the idea from homer and virgil from aeneas for there is a couplet by Aeneas preserved in the same book of Cicero's on the state, if it be right for a mortal to scale the regions of heaven, then the huge gate of the sky opens in glory to me. But that I, too, while engaged upon another task, may not slip into the department of the philologist or the scholar. My advice is this that all study of philosophy and all reading should be applied to the idea of living the happy life that we should not hunt out archaic or far-fetched words and eccentric metaphors and figures of speech but that we should seek precepts which will help us utterances of courage and spirit which may at once be turned into facts we should so learn them that words may become deeds And I hold that no man has treated mankind worse than he who has studied philosophy as if it were some marketable trade, who lives in a different manner from that which he advises. For those who are liable to every fault which they castigate advertise themselves as patterns of useless training. A teacher like that can help me no more than a seasick pilot can be efficient in a storm. He must hold the tiller, when the waves are tossing him. He must wrestle, as it were, with the sea. He must furl his sails when the storm rages. What good is a frightened and vomiting steersman to me? And how much greater, think you, is the storm of life than that which tosses any ship? One must steer, not talk. All the words that these men utter and juggle before a listening crowd belong to others. They have been spoken by Plato, spoken by Zeno, spoken by Chrysippus or by Posidonius, and by a whole host of Stoics as numerous as excellent. I shall show you how men can prove their words to be their own. It is by doing what they have been talking about. Since, therefore, I have given you the message I wish to pass on to you, I shall now satisfy your craving and shall reserve for a new letter a complete answer to your summons, so that you may not approach in a condition of weariness a subject which is thorny, and which should be followed with an attentive and painstaking ear. FAREWELL. End of Letter One Hundred Eight, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.